BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spending some time reconnecting with nature this summer? Here's a camping hack from L.L. Bean to make your next trip the best yet. Tired of your tentmate's flashlights shining in your eyes in camp? Bring an empty half-gallon milk jug or clear water bottle. Simply strap a headlamp around it, and it becomes a soft white lantern for everyone to see the light. For more camping hacks, visit youtube.com slash L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Write that, write that down. Welcome back. Hello from Burbank, California. Thank you for joining us once again. Another episode of Write That Down on the Fight Game Media Network. I'm Justin Nipper. I edit on fightgamemedia.com, staff writer at wrestlingobserver.com. I work for Pro Wrestling Noah and Cyberfight Inc. And I am back with Japan's leading pro wrestling author, historian, Japan's leading broadcast journalist, Japan's leading wrestling sociologist, the one and only Mr. Fumi Saito. On this week's episode, we talked about Masahiro Chono. Masa Chono, however you know him, the one and only after he debuted after dozens of wrestlers left New Japan for Rikichoshu's Japan Pro Wrestling and the first iteration of UWF it was Chono alongside of Keiji Muto and Shinya Hashimoto his fellow three musketeers his peers from his class that's when they rose to their highest peaks of popularity and it was around this time where Chono really hit his peak points as active in-ring performer. This was during the mid-90s. He had a distinct career, distinct career path over the years, too. He went up and down the eastern coast, North America, traveled to Germany, Austria, met his wife over in Germany. And that's where he really began to grow into this iconic figure 
that we're familiar with today with the sunglasses and the long black jacket and catchphrases like god damn that's right Masachono. so we'll get into that shortly if you have not already please subscribe to the fight game media network our podcast feed is on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Downcast, wherever you are downloading your podcasts. Please subscribe to the feed. Leave a nice note for us if you'd like to. It helps us out a ton. All right, that's enough. Back on track. Black Charisma. Masachono. All right, so Masachono... One thing that I learned in prepping for this was that he was born in Seattle. Born in Seattle because he grew up in very, um, like a rich or the, like a upper middle class um, businessman type of family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's so Tokyo, you know, city boy. Yeah. What did his parents do? I'm not sure. This is a big corporate kind of thing, I think. Yeah. And uh, was the head of a U.S. branch of the big company or something. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, he was born in Seattle, right? But the uh, uh, official record, yeah, he's he always built from Mitaka, Tokyo. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And such a it's, – it's actually like, – I'm surprised that we didn't haven't, – haven't done, done a Masachono solo episode up, up until now. Right. He's – his career runs parallel to a lot of the people we've talked about in the past, but he also had his own path. Even from the beginning, like you said, his background was pretty different from other wrestlers' upbringings, especially yeah. around that time. And uh, the group of people you just said it was all Japan's um, four pillars, right? That uh, mm-hmm. Misawa, Kawada, Kobashi, and Akira Taue, that's four. Four big one and three musketeer, Keiji Muto, Shinya Hashimoto, and the Masahiro Chono. That's a puck, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was synonymous to 90s wrestlers, 90s superstars. After Ki, or you see, there was Inoki and, and Riki Choshu, Tatsumi Fujinami era, but the brand new superstar was always Keiji Muto and Shinya Hashimoto and Masa Chono. Then you had Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sasaki. But the, those three were very, very special. Muto, Chono, and Hashimoto. Whereas, see, after Giant Baba, they had Jumbo Tsura and Tenru, of course. But they had to wait until rise of Misawa and Kawada and Kobashi and Taue. And that was like, that's a symbol, symbolized 90s uh, peak era of all Japan. So, so, yeah, these four wrestlers in old Japan and three musketeers in New Japan, they were the 90s superstar, superstar. That's mm-hmm. like the basic of our understanding. Oh, yeah. Yeah, episode. Because we did, you know, episode on Keiji Muto and Great Mura, of course, and we did Hashimoto, right? Well, I don't think we've dedicated oh, my God. a full... Yeah, but we always talked about the three musketeers and, uh, and the four yes. pillars. Yeah, we, we, we've talked about, I think we did, last year we did a Three Musketeers episode. So we, we covered each of the Musketeers, but not in a separate episode. We did the, sure, the Muto sure. four-part right, Now that they, you know, that uh, Keiji Muto doing his you know, big, huge retirement tour. And uh, much like, much like, you know, 
Toshiaki Kawada of All Japan, uh, he kind of left wrestling without having big retirement. You know, you know, everybody knows that it's not the Kawada is now it's a ramen shop owner and mm. grumpy old man. You know, he's <laughs> like, you can always go to his ramen house. And it's not like famous celebrities restaurant that the, that person is never there. When you go to Kawada's ramen place, he's always, always there. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And Masachono's case, he uh, he runs his own company called Aristotoristo, that uh, uh, European that uh, avant-garde fashion. Uh, it's like a designer's line clothing. Mm-hmm. That he and his wife runs. And but, I think if you watch some like pro wrestling Noah these days, you usually see someone like Takashi Sugiura wearing those print logo oh, oh, shono outfit yeah, yeah. yeah. just the, yeah. you know the warm-up t-shirt or something uh yeah yes. but it's not a wrestling uh that the line of clothing it's mm-hmm. actual uh, that the designer's clothing that uh, he that the chono and his wife martina created mm-hmm. and he has a place in, uh, up in ginza that uh, kind of like I mean, not associated with wrestling at all. That uh, that's his place, you know. Uh, Ginza is the last place you would think you'd see pro wrestling. <laughs> it's like a Beverly Hills, uh, yeah, uh, Beverly shopping, Hills, or yeah, shopping or in a tourist district. Manhattan yeah, he had shopping, shopping center. Could do, yeah, and he had another shop in Ebisu. Fairly successful, huh? Hmm. Yeah. And uh, Three Musketeer, uh, if not, you know, if the listeners out there are not so familiar with, and Three Musketeer was like Antonio Inoki's very last direct disciples. Mm-hmm. You know, Inoki leaves New Japan uh, uh, year 1989 to be politician, and it's a, I mean, real politician, not the local council, not just a real politician, right? like, a, like a parliament. And he really left wrestling without retiring. And Inoki wrestled next eight years, maybe once or twice a year, and just get in shape and have you know one or two important matches a year. But uh, when Keiji Muto and Masachono and Shinya Hashimoto signed with New Japan as a rookie, that was uh, fall of 1984. 1984. And Chono debuted in October 5th, October 5th of 1984. It was uh, basically scouting, you know, scouting, you know, the roster of New Japan era. I'll tell you why, because between 83 and 84, 30 wrestlers, 30 plus wrestlers left New Japan. First, you know, Akira Maeda, the Nobuhiko Takada, the Satoru Sayama, the original Tiger Mask, Kazuki, you know, Kazuo Yamazaki, the, uh, did I miss anybody? Uh, uh, Osamu Kido. Uh, oh, oh, like Russia. Oh, yeah, Osamu Kido, the uh, Yoshiaki Fujiwara, of course, uh, to form original U, you know, U, UWF, okay? Uh-huh. And summer to fall of 1984, Riki Choshu with his 15 guys left New Japan. And forming Japan Pro Wrestling and signed with Nippon TV Channel 4 and All Japan. And that the entire 15 guy crew, like you have Riki Choshu, the Yoshiaki Yatsu, the Kuniaki Kobayashi, the Killer Khan, the uh, Animal Hamaguchi, that group all went All Japan and from New Japan to All Japan. That was a big dynamic change, right? Hmm. And so UWF group, 10 guys left New Japan you know, 80, 83 to 84. Oh, they, they eventually come back. But Ricky Choshu and his 15 guys left New Japan the summer of 84. They were still, you know, New Japan was, you know, 
still holding this rookie audition. And it was Keiji Muto, Masachono, and Shinya Hashimoto. Actually, you had Masakatsu Funaki later on, creator of Pancras, mm-hmm. and Nogami Akira in it. Minoru Suzuki didn't join uh, until 80, like 87. Okay, mm-hmm. but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about him a little bit later. But Masachono, Hashimoto, Muto were the three golden rookie. The Masakatsu Funaki, at the time, Masaharu Funaki, he was still like a 15. He finished up ninth grade and going to 10th grade, but the left left high school in the middle of 10th, you know, 10th grade age and just, you know, came to New Japan Dojo before his 16th birthday. That's his very much isolated case, right? But uh, yeah, uh, actually, Hashimoto was the only one who came to New Japan Dojo right out of high school. See, Keiji Muto went to judo college for three years, mm-hmm. you know, and then he had, uh, well, he was a third place in national judo, and also he got the license to be judo chiropractic, right? And uh, Muto was already about 21 when he joined New Japan, and Masachono was also, he was already like 20. Um, what was he doing? He actually was enrolled in college, who never went. You know, uh, yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, d- did he have much of an athletic background compared with played soccer you, in high school? Soccer player, yeah, yeah. But soccer he, player has a pretty good one, no. But he wasn't in. He wasn't involved. Not with a national level, no, no. Or, or or even just like combat sport, like a martial arts or wrestling. He did not have any wrestling background or any martial arts or the combat sport background. Just natural athlete played soccer all through high school and a yeah. big guy probably by that point too. Yeah, pretty tall yeah yeah mm. 188 centimeters so he's like six three and a half mm. that's pretty pretty big in japan yeah that's about the size of somebody like uh kazuchika okada or something uh okada is really tall so uh muto is tall he muto's tall too yeah, yeah chono actually is as tall as misawa or takada yeah mm. Yeah, that size. Taller than Kawada, taller than Hashimoto. Yeah. But uh, yes, he watched one summer in high school, he watched Riki Choshu against Tatsumi Fujinami. Mm. You know, that that's the match. He's like, whoa, I wanna I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do this. Yeah, so he admits that he didn't grow up, you know, grow up like other wrestlers, like an intense, serious wrestling fan for all his childhood. He wasn't like that. He watched Fujinami against Chono one summer, it's like, and watched it over and over because there, there was there are more than one Choshu Fujinami match, right? They mm. did that like, ten single matches one summer or something, but. Uh, yeah, that was a single match, and very athletic, convincing. Much like non-wrestling fans, Chono did have a little bit of, you know, like a biased opinion. Is well, because they say it's fake, right? Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Having more of a common sense background. But the, when he watched Choshu against Fujinami single match at their peak, it's like a, nobody can say you know say it's fake it's like a great thing it's it's just like it some must have hit his head right it's like mm-hmm. something happened in chono's head i'm going to do this and he just decided 
while he was a freshman in college. He never went back to went, went back to college, and he just, his parents didn't even know about it. Isn't that interesting? Send somebody, yeah, some your, your oldest son to your college, and supposed to be he he's already in college, you know. And uh, parent, your parents would think, right? He's in school. He's not in, at the parents' house at the time. It's during the semester. It's like, instead, he didn't tell his parents. He just decided, like, stopped going to college and just joined New Japan. And then his family didn't even know until he debuted. And what was their general, I guess, reaction or opinion on him getting into pro wrestling? Oh, it's much like your middle, you know, middle class, you know, kid that uh, he didn't know what to do uh, with your life or what you want to be, you know, when you grow up, right? And that's why he went to college. <laughs> mm. Does that happen sometimes? Mm. It's like, I it's undecided. I don't know what to do and what I you know what I want to be doing, what I want to be when you grow up, kind of thing. And uh, that's the reason a lot of kids ended up going to college. You know, then you have another four years to think about it. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So he really enrolled in college, but he watched. Ricky Choshu against Fujinami single match one summer. That's like, it's like oh, I'm going to do this, and just nothing else was important anymore. Hmm. And he was big enough and athletic enough that he made the famous New Japan audition. You know, back then in early '80s, what uh, over 100 you know high school athlete and college athlete tryout. You know, at the time, like. Inoki or Fujinami or Sakaguchi, they'll be, you know, auditioning and interviewing you. And so it's really hard to pass, you know, New Japan audition. Some of these later on, the independent superstars, like, I don't want to name a few, but the, there were wrestlers who didn't make New Japan audition, but ended up becoming wrestlers later on in other companies. So New Japan's always been the elite of pro wrestling. That's what I'm trying to get to. He, from the beginning, he was he was ready to at least step in the ring and, and he could hang as an athlete. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, he was in good shape and a good size. He had a good size and good look. And then, and, uh, even at the time, you know, magazine people were looking at, did you see those three rookies? They are going to be somebody. Mm -hmm. Talking about Muto and Chono and Hashimoto, those three. Uh, they were they were saying like that. Those three. So. Even um, like five, six years before the name, the three musketeers was given, that uh, those three, Muto, Chono, and Hashimoto, really stuck out as, as, as a the special, special rookie. You know, they didn't really look at uh, Funaki because Funaki was still 15 years of age, but the Funaki was a kid who could do every single original Tiger's, Tiger Mask move, you know. Is that, is that interesting? Mm. The Funaki was able to do every single Satoru Sayama's Tiger Mask move as at the audition, because just able to do it after watching TV. You know what I'm saying? Some people like that, you know? And uh, the Tiger Mask was that big, I'm saying. And also, Riki Choshu Fujinami single match program was that influential. That really changed somebody's life. And the Chono was one of them. He wanted to be a wrestler. He came to New Japan audition, and uh, yeah, it was, it was his bio. It was all 
just all of just high school, you know, resume that what you played, you know, I played soccer, no combat sports, no martial arts background that the, you, this, this kid has to start from scratch. But good enough athlete that you can hang with New Japan Dojo program, I mean, the practice program, you know, that the scrimmage, it's really hard. And one before, so that's called class of 1984. Muto, Chono, Hashimoto, Akira, Nogami, and Masaharu, Masakatsu, Funaki, and one or two guys who didn't make it. But the the previous year, class of 1983, there was Keiichi Yamada and Naoki Sano and another guy, uh, Hirohata. And so Laiga was actually a year before that, these guys. Like one year senpai. How long did Liger stay around New Japan at that time? Did he stay or he went abroad after that? Oh, he didn't go abroad until like 86, 87. So mm. he was there for the yeah, like the first three years. He was like a nasty senpai. Ah. <laughs> yeah. It's a big part of the, he, that's a big part yeah, of the process, the, right? Pra- yeah, practice. Yeah. Oh, now they're friends, I'm sure. But hmm. uh, when you're one year rookie, I mean, like a starting rookie and one year senpai is like, a, it's like way ahead of you, right? Hmm. Yeah, this is what what I did last year. You guys got to do the same kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. And also at the time, we, we covered that. Everybody with names, like, Nikki Choshu and 50, his 15 guys already left to form Japan Pro Wrestling and joined and signed with All Japan for the next you know, two or three years. And UWF guys like Akira Maeda, the veteran Fujiwara, Golden, you know, at the time, very promising junior heavyweight superstar to be Nobuhiko Takada, Kazuo Yamazaki, original Tiger Mask, Satoru Saima, they all left. So it's like, who was at the dojo at the time? It was like a Don Arakawa or, you know, somebody funny, you know, and then, then superstar, whoever left. It was like, of course, Antonio Inoki was there still, but who never came, came to dojo. He just, Inoki comes in at night and does his workout in the middle of the night and leaves. It doesn't have group morning practice with younger guys. And Seiji Sakaguchi, who does the office work, the real vice president of the company. Fujinami, Kengo Kimura, maybe, because they have their own schedule. You know, they're superstars. They don't really practice with younger guys. And Cobra, uh, Joji Takano, the super strong machine, Junji Hirata, they were veterans, so they don't come the morning practice. So what they're doing was like a, the group of 10, 15, then young lions, they were working out on their own. And uh, you would think you'll bum out because all the superstars are gone. And uh, it's like this new Japan. Yeah, it's it's still new Japan and still on Friday night TV on TV Asahi every week. But it's it was like, you'll bum out. It's like, Is this ship you know sinking, right? Mm. But what Muto and Chon and Hashimoto thought was different. It's like, whoa, all these big names above us is gone. Great. We'll be on TV right away. <laughs> is, is That's how Muto thought. It's very creative. Because you would think Japanese rookie would be so humble, right? NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. 
NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, but you know what? I think what makes Three Musketeers distinct, special, special yeah. and and let's let's say different from the big four in all Japan. I think the oh, they were pounded on that, and also Mister and Mrs. Baba, right? Mm-hmm. Do this and do that, and don't do this, don't do that. Yeah, I think that the Three Musketeers all had very colorful and very different personalities. They were actually oh, they're so, different. You know, because they came up together and it's a different sort of story. Yeah, Whereas yeah, definitely. Muto, Hashimoto, and Chono all have a very, like you mentioned, I think last week we were talking about it. They were like three army buddies who were yeah, together. Yeah, they are really close though, but they are so different. Very different. And I, mm-hmm. I think what you said, uh, we were talking about it earlier about how Chono is more of the avant-garde city boy approach where Hashimoto is the complete opposite oh, of country that. bumpkin. Yeah, absolutely. And, and judo, uh, serious judo and serious karate back background. Yeah. He's yeah, an extra Japanese sh- wrestler. Japanese yeah, pride. Ne- never hide his emotion. He just openly cries in front of people, mm-hmm. you know, when he's sad or when he's touched by something, he cr- start crying again and just emotions. very like a some modern day samurai, like, yeah, Hashimoto is what what you see is what you get, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like very much emotional person. A couple of years younger than Muto and Hashimoto, I mean Muto and Chono. Chono is such a city guy that he kicks back and watch everybody else and say, huh, right? Mm-hmm. I'll do different, you know, so avant-garde. And Muto naturally so gifted above everybody else that mm-hmm. he was going to be starved. I mean, everybody look at this rookie, Keiji Muto, thinking that the, this guy would be somebody like a year from now kind of thing. Sure enough, Keiji Muto was sent to NWA Florida the following year, you know, grow his hair long and come back with new new finish, come back with a new costume, or even give you a new new ring name. They didn't. But, uh, you know, if you remember Space Long Off Wolf, Mm-hmm. Keiji Muto was, you know, like a full-face helmet and the silver blue costume and all these things. Chono was a little late because, like, like I said, Keiji Muto was so gifted that he was it, you know, from any, everybody's eyes right away. So he was sent to America right away and come back as a star, right? So he he walked out of dojo first. And Hashimoto is more, like you said, extra Japanese guy. He's strong judo background, strong uh, karate background, and came from single parent family and grew up really poor that he thought being a wrestler or buy him house in two years time, right? Kind of thing. And he was supporting his own family too at the time, you know, younger sister and all. And Chono choose this as his profession. He want, you know, he want, want to do this. But uh, as a wrestler, 
you could you could tell that the Keiji Muto will become star, flashy star, gifted athlete, good-looking guy. Hashimoto would be very Japanese, very Japanese. That the, he's a little chubby, but the, he almost like a sumo wrestler, cute, right? Sure, and he had a very Showa look. He had the Showa, Showa look, yeah. Big, and, uh, big body, but with the the mullet haircut and the. Uh, the red uh, American, the yeah, American wrestler who came to New Japan during the 80s were calling Hashimoto Fat Elvis. <laughs> yeah, okay. I yeah, can see yeah. that. Oh, he, that he did kind of have the Elvis pants. I think it was the pants. Oh, and uh, greased hair in front. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, Fat Elvis. was. But he also, anyway. he had the, the headband. Oh, yeah. And he did the Ricky Dozan style Buddhist praying thing. Buddhist praying and Ricky Dozan style uh, front chop. Oh, uh, of course, of course. Yeah. Karate chop, not in the knife edge Very chop domestic. we see. Yeah. yeah. And it's almost like Enka singing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the <laughs> yeah. karate kicks and. Uh, of course. Very. Not much of a big wrestling moves, you know, just see, well, DDT and uh, straight up vertical suplex, like a formal pile driver thing a little bit later on. But uh, yeah, he, good athlete, but pretty heavy. And uh, yeah, it wasn't Antonio Inoki's ideal superstar. He didn't think too much about it, as mm -hmm. at the beginning, until he grew older. But the Chono, at the same time, didn't have what to sell, you know. You know what I'm saying? Paul, mm -hmm. good athlete, but uh, he didn't have moonsault. He didn't have a karate a judo background. Mm -mm. And in like it was like 1991 when when I met Chono, he really gave me the idea that what, what Ch Masa Chono will be later on. That the, he told me it's not about it's just direct quote from Masa Chono to me that when I saw, you know met him for the interview magazine interview, he said. He really said that that it's not about it's not about who's the toughest. It's about who's the smartest. Whoa! I mean, when he was what just twenty five of twenty five years of age. That's very uh, mature thinking for Don't you that think? time of his and career. Yeah, city boy, Tokyo oriented. You know, lots of information, and he even went to college. He didn't graduate, but uh, you know, he's looking at you know his surrounding. And Muto is this, and Fujinami is like that, Choshi is like that. Inoki is a symbol. It's just he was smart enough to kick back a little bit and see his own environment. It's not about who's the toughest. A lot of wrestling fans think is the who is the strongest and who's the toughest, right? And he told me it's not about who's the toughest it's about who is the smartest Ooh, you know and actually he became that kind of wrestlers if you remember new japan style in early 80s like late 70s into 80s for the listeners out there who don't know that the fujinami was the junior heavyweight champion you mm -hmm. know late late 70s into early 80s until he you know put on some weight and then and, and fujinami became part of the heavyweight division but uh, all through late 70s into early part of 80s inoki the heavyweight champion to main event right mm -hmm. and all the superstar or the heel version of ricky choshi or something you know that's always inoki will have single match main event and fujinami, fujinami will be the junior heavyweight champion until the, the original Tiger Mask era. It was actually Fujinami against Dynamite Kid junior heavyweight title match. People don't remember that that much. 
But, uh, you know, Fujinami had all kinds junior heavyweight challenger like Chavo, Chavo Guerrero. Now we call him Chavo Guerrero Classic, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, all, all these single that the Mexican wrestlers basically more junior heavyweight oriented, huh? Mm-hmm. Inoki's heavyweight division, Fujinami's junior heavyweight division. And, you know, when Inoki has tag team match, it was Inoki and Sakaguchi together go up against people like what, the Johnny Powers and Pat Patterson, some, something like that. And, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or Holly, Hollywood Blondes or something. Not the Hollywood Blondes, Steve Austin and Brian Pillman, but the Hollywood Blondes, Jerry Brown and Buddy Roberts, the original, yeah, uh, that uh, Hollywood Blondes. And, yeah, those were the formula. And Cho, then later on, Fujinami became heavyweight, and the Choshu turned Japanese babyface. Killer Khan comes back from America, becomes heel Japanese, and therefore you have Riki Choshu and his faction. Kuniaki Kobayashi came back from Mexico and became biggest rival of original Tiger Mask. So you have heel roster now. But uh, Chono wasn't like Muto's very extra gifted athlete who was doing moonsault in his rookie years, right? And Hashimoto, you could tell he was uh, going to be like a martial arts type guy, you know, chops and kicks and this and that, and very emotional. And he actually, um, Chono looked at the thing and said, like, you don't need 20 flashy moves to, to have good wrestling match. You probably need three which he had later on, you know, that his finish STF, right? If you remember, step over toe hold with face lock That's that right. he beat everybody with. He, it was given by Luthes. Mm. So it became storyline and also signature move. You only need one signature move to go along, right? And uh, he had this second rope, you know, flying shoulder block, which he said was actually easy, but looks good. So I'll do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm. And uh, th- then Yakuza kick later on. I mean, simple Yakuza kick, much like your uh, Shawn Michaels uh, switching music. But if um, you use the, yeah. Oh, I was I was just gonna reiterate, like just like that, the the Yakuza kick, the shoulder block. I mean, STF. That, STF. That's after, it. Yeah, that's it. Just kind of variations on that afterward. I mean, he's not what you'd expect when we talk about a lot of Japanese pro wrestlers. Yeah, because American fans in general think, you know, when you talk about Japanese superstar, these Japanese superstar was 20 you know, spectacular moves, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in the 80, early 80s, it was like that too because um, the, the junior heavyweight influence and also original original Tiger Mask Satoru Sayama's influence that you would be doing this that the out of the world athletic, you know, spectacular moves, one high spot after another, you know. But Jumbo and Tenru, on the other hand, you know, all Japan pro wrestling heavyweight, they were doing a lot of big moves too, you know. And uh, actually, Muto and Chono was, was the one who reduced, you know, the, the number of moves and, and then he went back to storyline matches. You know, it's about telling the story during the match. You don't need 20 moves. And actually, um, Chono knew that he wasn't the uh, athlete of Keiji Muto. And Hashimoto does his thing. It's different that uh, Chono was the only one actually 
doing the the, the work on the body part match. Mm-hmm. If you gotta go with this, you know, you know the go go to somebody's arm you work on somebody's arm the entire match if it's a knee night you know you gotta work on somebody's knee the entire night if it's a lower back match you go go after somebody's lower back the entire match then going to finish it's, it's like a storytelling match the working body parts in you know, the parts he learned from the states he was actually sent see, uh keiji muto was sent to america florida right and Shinya Hashimoto was sent to uh, Puerto Rico and Calgary, mostly Calgary, you know. And Chono was sent to Europe, you know, first, you know, when they, when Otto Vance was still having this, you know, fall, autumn fall into winter, you know, this European style that the tournament matches, you know, you work in the same building for a 40 day period every night, you know, it's a, like a tournament matches and you ended up actually learning European style from people like Tony St. Clair, you know, and this is how you do it. They was, you know, in, 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 even in eighties into early part of nineties, Europe was still running wrestling match at the, like a, like a circus tent. Right. And, uh, actually having round match, you know, like a one round, five minute and go for a five round match. <laughs> it's it's a round, you know, like a five minute one round. You know, just do the. Oh, of course, that the uh, young younger Leon White before he was Vader, Chono and Vader met, you know, in Europe. They were working. Oh, both rookie relatively, right? But uh, they learned their craft overseas, where you you have like wrestling have no language barrier that the in European t- tournament like Otto Vance tournament wrestler from Japan wrestler from America wrestler from Germany and Austria and England that the, they gather and have this European style tournament and a lot of times common language has you know happened to be English but wrestlers are speaking in German and and, and in other languages that the you just learn the craft, like you realize that wrestling has no boundary and you really learn this, you know, this kind, you know, like almost pantomiming psychology from veterans. Like I said, Tony, like people like Tony St. Clair, uh, Otto Vance and uh, young Leon White and Scott Hall, you know, like later on Scott Hall, of course, NW, you know, NW Scott Hall, but the, Scott Hall had many tours in Europe being Texas Scott, like a stereotype American, you know, like a cowboy gimmick. But uh, it, people like Scott Hall went through that European tour, really learned how to, how to work in front of people who didn't even, you know, speak the same language. Yeah. And Chono, Chono worked... European tours, you know, then when it was sent to sent to the, the central states, you know, central states like a Kansas, like a real dying days of NWA, right? Mm. Cho, younger Chono working in America, working in a match against people like, a, you know, Bodak Bob Brown. Can you imagine? 
No, not really. And I was wondering when he was working as a young guy over in Europe in and States? in the States, yeah. was he working like a baby face or was he working like... Uh, a... Kind of like wrestler, wrestler. Of course, uh, he was wearing Japan knee tights, like Masa Saito's tights, you mm -hmm. know, like a long tights, but his part of your leg shows, you know, and it says Japan. Mm. Yeah, with Japanese flag on, on the trunks. And was doing kicking and, and chopping too, because they—that's what you know that what they want you to do. Um, in Kansas City, that the Central State area, you had uh, Bodak Bob Brown or Mike George. Um, yeah, like uh, these people was like all, all forgotten, right? <laughs> Pretty much that. Uh, yeah, and they—he was relatively rookie, but company the Japanese wrestler, you know coming to your territory they want to use you as a main event already mm -hmm. special yeah, so, attraction yeah so chono had to learn quick you know the psychology of it you know and watching people like a cub you know bulldog bob brown who doesn't do anything but you can actually have 20 minute match how could that be possible and really learn how to you know do this 20 minute match without really doing much but you, you know, that the people felt like you watched something. That's really hard to explain. You know, mm -hmm. basic, you know, side headlock, you know, lock up, and uh, that uh, push these guys into the rope, and you know, referee and wrestler look at each other. You know, that the audience can't really hear him, but the, you are actually pantomiming. It's like a referee tell you to let go, and he'll say, you know, no, I won't let go, and it's like. A, don't hit the referees a part of it. It's like break it up, break it up, break it up, and stepping back slowly and break it up. All right. Then you walk around the ring, you know, that the counterclockwise and lock up again. And somebody's gonna take headlock first. And just all these very basic, each and every basic move means something in front of a live crowd. Does yeah. that make sense? Oh yeah. And yeah, thinking about Bulldog Brown, I mean. He, well, he wasn't young at that time. Either. No, was, no. Was, towards wrestler the end of his career. and Booker. Yeah, mm -hmm. wrestler and Booker. Yeah, I mean, smaller territory. Yeah, but the, he, Chono, you know, that that's what he learned the most. You know, and you can see like the the style that you described. I mean, that was what would become Masachono's style in the ring. He. He was and lock uh, up. Yeah, he really locks up like a classic wrestling match and push the guy into the corner or the into the rope and referee will tell you to break up and just like vice versa that the tell rest you know referee to shut up or you know or push guys like a, do, do not hit, right? Because referee will tell you, you know, break it up. Then that's when Chono really becomes this psychology guy, right? Mm. And he was after after this, he was sent to Alabama, of all things. <laughs> you know, uh, Pensacola and Alabama, the golf course, it's continental wrestling, you know, with, uh, with, with like a Armstrongs, you know, Brad Armstrong, mm. his brothers, and, and his father, you know, Bullet, you know. Bullet Bob. Uh, yeah, and his guys. And that the wrestlers, you can't remember names. And then he and Greg Kokina traveled together. Mm -hmm. Great Kokina later on Yokozuna, right? That's right. Yeah, the Yoko uh, Rodney 
was relatively rookie. He was doing the monster. I mean, relatively rookie, but uh, still pretty good. I mean, already pretty good. And uh, he was being great Kokina. Of course, great Kokina, a little bit later on, be brought into New Japan as a big, you know, big super, you know, like a giant heel. But uh, both relatively rookie, and they stayed together. And Rodney and Chono became friends and talk about psychology of wrestling, you know, doing less is doing more kind of mm. thing. Yeah, see, because see, see, Keiji Muto was so gifted that he can do anything. And he's like, always like a exception, right? Mm. Chono really had, had to learn how to work body part and tell the story and go right into one finish move, you know, match kind of thing. And he did that in the continental area in Alabama. And also, Chono spent one summer at the New Brunswick in Eastern Canada, summer territory. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like another the, the last lasting territory before WWE and WCW took over the whole world. You know, it's like their rookie years were was like dying days of. Now, now you know people watch tales from territories as a TV show, right? Mm. The Chono was the last one that, that experienced local territories. In summer, he was sent to Eastern Canada, spent summer there. You know, that the Dupree family, you know, like René Dupree's fa- father mm-hmm. was running. Uh, summer, Emil summer. Dupree? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Emil, yeah. E- Emil Dupree was running summer territory. Sundays and Sunday, two shows, but all summer is running Eastern Canada territory, all summer like your summer circus, right? Mm hmm. Yeah, and that's where he really learned. Um, Chono wrestled every day at the East, Eastern Territory, and you were wrestling against people that you don't even remember their names, you know. Mm. And uh, it really picked up how to work in front of the audience. It's almost like a first-time audience that live wrestling, you know, you're not wrestling in front of an educated crowd like you wrestle in front of a Tokyo crowd. Mm-hmm. But uh, something that works in front of all the audience, bad guys and good guys and, you know, bad guy cheats, good guy defense, and this is just a real basic formula of wrestling that can work maybe 100 years from now. Mm-hmm. And then the Chono was like that. You don't need spectacular move. If you know how to work the crowd, that's... This is a bit, it really, Pretty much Chono style later on, right? Yeah, so he was interesting. He went to Europe. He went to Central State, Kansas. He went to Alabama, Birmingham, and, and the Pensacola, Florida, the Gulf Coast area, Continental Territory. Then was sent to uh, Eastern Canada, Dupree, you know, territory all summer. It was just, this is how you learn how to work in front of live live audience. You know, isn't that interesting, though? Mm, he, he could really, really work. Yeah. I think overseas he really learned how to speak the language of wrestling. He could really a, a little bit differently than uh, his peers like Muto and Hashimoto. Right, right. They did and, too, and, and, but in a different way. Yeah, because Calgary, you almost like where Hashimoto was at for like eight months period. That the, going to going to Calgary, you could almost almost tell what you were doing. 
because you know the wrestlers over there. And also going to Calgary, you'd be with other like five other Japanese wrestlers. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like when, when, when Hashimoto was there, you know, young Kensuke is Sasaki or younger Kichi Yamada. That, uh, Hase. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, and people rotate, you know, like, uh, before them, they, there was like a Joji Takano Cobra was there, Junji, Junji Hirata Super Strong Machine was there, uh, Norio Honaga was there, uh, Shunji Takano, the, the Joji Takano's younger brother, they were all there, Ricky Fuji, they, they were there. So there's always five or six Japanese wrestlers in Calgary in one territory. It was like you could have a very good time, right? Chono mm. uh, traveled alone. You know, he was the only Japanese wrestler in one territory, Eastern Canada, New Brunswick area, Kansas City, oh, the, the Birmingham, Alabama. You will be one, only one Japanese wrestler, you know, that uh, he just spoke. He had to speak English, too. Can you imagine going going over a match in English when you're a rookie? <laughs> I mean, that's the ultimate test. And it's not. Yeah, he, common. yeah so he was a very much international wrestler then. And he wasn't yeah. going to uh, very international or cosmopolitan places. It wasn't, you know, Los Angeles. No, it or... wasn't Dallas. It wasn't Los Angeles. Not even Florida, like in like in Tampa, Florida. It was Pensacola area. You know, it's like a really southern wrestling, right? And he, there's a yeah. good chance he was the only Japanese or maybe even Asian person in, you know, 50, 100 area? miles. Yeah. <laughs> Probably, yeah. So I, I think had, yeah he had good time you know in in, in the new New Brunswick Eastern Canada area that the, he actually played soccer with five year old René Dupuis ah yeah and René Dupuis twenty years later told me I played soccer with Chono when I was five you did it's like yeah and they didn't cross path another ten years you know what I'm saying it's funny. Yeah, so this is wrestling is wrestling business and this fraternity and camaraderie is such a wonderful thing, you know. That you probably met these people and they crossed paths somewhere, you know. And mm. It's really interesting. But Chono had his own experience. See, Muto was sent to NWA Florida, right? And a little bit later on, he went to world class uh, Dallas, and he went to Puerto Rico. They, you know, uh, spent time with like uh, Kendo. See, Muto always had little, you know, little help like partner Kendo Nagasaki or partner Mr. Pogo that uh, he helped them too. So it was good. But the, Chono traveled alone, basically. Yeah. And one big difference, I think, between Chono and Muto and Hashimoto is that when he was in Europe, he kind of, he fell in love. He met his wife. Right, met his wife in first sight. And, and still, yeah, his wife 30 years later, Martina. Right. Martina. Yeah. From Germany? Ger- Austria? Germany. Germany, yeah. And she came to Japan and she's been living here for the past 30 years. Amazing. You know what? If you watch some of these older, uh, bigger 1991, 1992 New Japan matches, you'll often see her right in the front row of these matches on the on the screen. Yeah, sometimes. But she basically stopped coming to shows though now. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But the, she made home in Japan. It's really amazing. Yeah. And when they communicate, what language do they use? uh what they call chono language uh so combination 
Yeah, like a little bit of German and a little bit of Japanese and lots of English. Yeah. Mm. But Sounds the German right. person and Japanese person speaking English, though. And the words they created, too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like the language they speak at home. Yeah. And so truly an international, like oriented superstar, Chono is, though. Yeah. I wanted to before because there's another stage in Chono's career we got to talk about. Before that, I know when we're talking about his wife Martina, there's also a connection with a female wrestler, Alpha Female or or Jazzy Gabert. Yeah, um, she comes over and it's like a Mr. and Mrs. Mrs. Chono become you know her host. Yeah, fem- yeah, Alpha Female like a, treat her like a daughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, K- kind of like a, a Kensuke Sasaki and Akira Hokuto and, with. Uh, yeah, Katsuko, Katsuko Nakajima. Nakajima. Oh, very similar, very similar. Kind, not not a blood under, under wing. family, but family. Oh, pretty much so, pretty much so. Yeah. Well, she was just here, you know, a couple a couple weeks ago, right? Oh, is she working for Stardom? Yeah, uh, just one tour, but she was I here see. a couple weeks ago, right? So yeah, because Martina, I thought that the you know, Jazzy, you know, the alpha females are like, coming to Japan. Well, tell it's like a great that, that you all by yourself, you know, then then uh, come over and stay with us, kind of thing. And yeah, very much so. Yeah, took her under their wing like a da- own daughter. Yeah, yeah, we can't forget that. But uh, after these European tour, uh, Eastern Canada. Kansas City and Alabama that the he, Chono came back with this white trunks, still baby face. See, the reason he was sent to uh, abroad uh, 87 was that, that the Chono beat Hashimoto for second annual Young Lion the tournament. Winner was Chono. So therefore he was sent to abroad. Then they went to Europe. Then went to America, went to Canada, went to South, and then he came back in, in uh, I believe it was April of 1990. Still babyface, okay? And Three Musketeer was, still wasn't there because in 1990, Muto was still great Muta in America. Yeah. Hashimoto came back first, then Chono, then Muto, yeah. And it wasn't called uh, Three Musketeer yet, just yet. You know, Inoki's still around, you know. Mm. And G1 Climax was the first one. Because you could tell people could see the Muto is grooming to be the next generation superstar, right? Mm. Yeah, and Hashimoto, big rival. And in general, New Japan fans' eyes still puzzled that what's really special about Chono here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also ba- being babyface didn't really help. But uh, he was not a favorite, but he was the winner of first inaugural G1 Climax Tournament 1991. Mm-hmm. Winning tournament was very important. You would think somebody like Choshu would win, somebody like Vader would win, somebody like Muto would win the first inaugural G1 Climax Tournament, right? Mm. It was Chono's time that the, he won first two years, 91 and 92. And that made general fans' eyes like, whoa, Chono is very special, right? All of a sudden. Yeah. Especially he, he beat Muto in that first final too. So I think that helped. Right, that, that helped. That's a famous, and the famous one that the people throw in the pillow, right? Pillow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
uh, the, 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 the sitting cushion at the sumo palace. After that incident, not an incident, but uh, yeah, people threw this, you know, that uh, pillow cushion all over the place. Like it's a big upset that the Chono beat Muto, right? He's equal, you know? And uh, after that, that the sumo palace didn't let you throw that pillow anymore. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So the first annual G1 climax in 1992, uh, then 90, 92 and 93, 91 and 92, he won two consecutive years. And third annual G1 climax that uh, Fujinami came back and won. And the fourth year, fourth year, Chono won the G1 climax again. That was the night he really flipped on people and then turned heel. And this very is. Next Mm, yeah. yeah, that's 94. the big change. Yeah, yeah. So he actually won G1 Climax three times, but the third when third time he won the tournament, he said, screw you to the mm. crowd. And very next day, he came back with all black costume. That's the beginning of Black Charisma, a heel version of Masachono. And he, he's been like this for, you know, ever since. Hmm. Goodbye to white costume, white tights, right? Well, it's a symbolized baby face, right? That the white trunks. Mm -hmm. and, and also, it was big that the second year, uh, G1 Climax, it was NWA World Heavyweight Tournament, if you remember. That's right. Yeah. Uh, that the New Japan and WCW signed the, the long you know, partnership. And it was really confusing almost, but the WCW at the time, in back in 92, was recognizing WCW World Heavyweight Champion and NWA, like old-fashioned National Wrestling Alliance, you know, from 1940s. They still recognized NWA World Title. So there was like there were like a two sets of World Heavyweight Title, which was confusing, wasn't it, for you? Yeah, it, it, at least for a fan watching WCW at the time, you'd be seeing the same title pop up on different shows, one in Japan. <laughs> yeah. And in, uh, in WCW, you it was also around the time that Ric Flair showed up. Ric on Flair, yeah, sure. with, with that, that belt. So yeah. um, it, looking back, it, it's easier to sort of comprehend, but back then now, it was yeah. just confusing it was hard to get it, into yeah it was introduced you know at the beginning of second year g1 climax we you know that the winner of this year's g1 climax tournament will also be crowned as now vacant nwa national wrestling alliance world heavyweight title well that goes back to frank gotch or something they were saying you know, it's like the oldest world heavyweight title will be you know determined in japanese ring and sure enough that the G1 Climax that year, 92 tournament final was Masa Chono against Ravishing Recruit. Mm. Yeah, with the manager, Medusa. Mm -hmm. Medusa came back a manager, yeah, that year. Not a wrestler with All Japan Women, but this time, WCW female manager. It was, yeah, he added a little different spice to it. And the, the, for the tournament final, uh, Masa Chono against Recruit, Dusty Rose and Bill Watts both showed up as a witness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so after the match, Dusty Rose and Bill Watts will be giving Chono the belt. I mean, this is a big moment, right? Sure. Yeah, so it was interesting because how, if you remember, how NWA-oriented Japanese fans being educated to, right? Mm -hmm. Because NWA World Title meant like people like Dory Funk Jr., the 
Jack Briscoe, the Harley Race, the Terry Funk, the maybe Ric Flair too, but the Jan Bauer was the only one who actually won NWA title in Japan. Always kind of returned it, you know, like end of the tour, that uh, Jack Briscoe will beat Baba again and then and take belts home. Harley, you know, Jan Baba beat Harley Race twice to become NWA World Champion, but the end of the tour. Race beat Baba again, and therefore belt goes back to America. But this time, people had to puzzle. Wow! Now New Japan and WCW signed a partnership, and and that the NWA title match taking place in New Japan ring, and people might thought Rick Rude would be winning this title, right? Mm-hmm. Then Chono won the NWA title and actually got the Rick Flair gold belt, and New Japan kept that title for quite a while, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then following uh, January's uh, Tokyo Dome was again Great Muta against Chono, and Great Muta won the NWA title and brought that back to uh, WCW, and Barry, Barry Windham uh, beat Muta, so title and the gold belt went back to America. But uh, for quite a while, that the Chono actually was recognized as, as in that version of NWA World Champion in Japan. And and with WCW too, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that elevated him, him. Oh yeah, the image of him with that belt is maybe one of the last images that I have as a fan of somebody having that belt until they started using it again. WCW. Yeah, yeah. And this 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 you know business partnership with New Japan and WCW was really interesting. That gold belt was brought back again a couple of years later as WCW international title. Mm-hmm. Again, Rick Rude being champion and Hiroshi Hase beat Rick Rude for that title and Hase himself won that flair gold belt and he, it's at his political office right now even to this, this date. They made another replica of this, you know, Flair Gold Belt, right? Uh, and uh, Hase kept it, yeah. And it's in his political office, yeah. It's interesting. But anyhow, you know, back to Chono. So he came back to Japan, and the Three Musketeers was formed, and knew his finish, like working body parts, and uh, not much spectacular move, but the Chono was the only one doing the storytelling match, working body part match, and uh, one finish, STF, uh, step over toehold with face lock, they call it, still call it STF, and they really cherished that, you know, finish that in, in the 80s and early part of 90s in Japanese wrestling, they were kicking out all the finishes, right? That's mm. what Misawa's matches are. Kobashi Kawada matches, you do the spectacular move, one, two, at the kind of 2.999 second that Kawada kicks out. That works. For some, but uh, Muto and Chono are the ones they brought the old-fashioned Finnish uh, philosophy back. That the, when this thing comes, you—I uh, mean, the, the match is over. It worked with Chono's STF, you know, that the the move submission move that was given by Luthes. That when Chono uses this STF step over toe hold with face up, he wins. You know, the so brought the match back to more old-fashioned. We didn't notice that you know, for quite a while, you know, and because Chono was doing this working body part match and psychology match, storytelling match, that the whole match was built to, to the, when would he go into STF. Mm-hmm. Like very old-fashioned, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, 
it, it really worked with him, you know, because that was Chono was that kind of wrestler. Yeah. And yeah. right before he went went black, when he went to the black charisma look and and image, ninety four. Ninety four. Before that, and especially those couple of years right up to it, it's hard to really call him a, a a baby face. Even though, I guess you could, it's easy. It's easy to call a baby face. But he, when we talk about Luthez, and if you're familiar with Luthez, Luthez wasn't necessarily a baby face, but he wasn't a wrestler's wrestler. Yeah, wrestler's wrestler, and both Thez and Chono would often. We talked about it a little bit earlier about. He wouldn't break the rules, but he'd often bend the rules and show the crowd that he was getting frustrated or that he was getting angry. And there was a little yeah, bit yeah, of yeah. nuance that both of those nuance, guys, yeah, storytelling. So it, it would uh, it created a character Chono uh, kind of cultivated that was a good wrestler, but you didn't know what he was thinking until this new character came out. Right, about. right. Then, then he started using more of yakuza kick as a finish. Yes, yes. That's your HBK sweet chin music kind of hmm. finish. And it was pretty flashy for him too. It's always you know running off the ropes and comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and then the kicks pretty high too. You know. Mm-hmm. And what was the unique about this Chono's yakuza kick was that I believe he was the only one in the whole world doing it. Very first move in the match he does is Yakuza kick, and and the finish of the match is also Yakuza kick. Mm. Isn't that interesting? That was more along the lines of the psychology you guys, Misawa, where they would use elbow. Right away, but that's not going to be a finish. But at mm. the end of the night, he'll win with uh, elbow, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Chono really cherished the Yakuza kick, uh, the Wakenka kick as a finish, but he did the very first thing he, you know, he does in, in that match is also that kick. He yeah. was hard to predict, even though he was kind of a, well, like we were talking about, he didn't do anything that was over-the-top flashy, athletic, uh, gimmicky. And also, he wasn't really like hard-hitting, like uh, what, you know, you know, on the other side, Kobashi and, and, and Misawa and Kawada was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't the, quite there, but it, it wasn't um, it wasn't completely uh, fluffy work either. It was No, 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 no. But it's like uh, Chono wouldn't waste any moves, that right. kind of thing. Right, yeah. Because you do the specter thing and have guy kick out, you just wasted the whole whole sequence or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he does everything very very smart. Yeah. So that black costume thing really took off, and it's like he built his own heel faction within New Japan. Because babyface though, right? Because Muto will always be babyface, and Hashimoto is very Jap- extra Japanese. Like not quite babyface, but it's like a, people will it will be always behind in Hashimoto's emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as of as of '96, that uh, he Chono took off in the middle of this ongoing tour, and I'm going to America. He went to America in, at the end of '96 and joined NWO on WCW TV. Chono was the only one. Oh, yeah. I mean, who, yeah, who could remember who, that? Yeah, pull it off. Chono shows up from Japan and appears on the you know, Monday Nitro. He's 
wore this NWO T-shirt. Then he bring the NWO logo back to New Japan. Therefore, NWO Japan was born. Mm. It was a big angle, wasn't it? And it was yeah. a big, it was presented the first, I remember when he was presented on WCW Nitro, it was a big deal. And uh, it, it definitely added to the momentum of what was going on. Yeah, in the yeah. Below. But also, also Monday Night, on, on Monday Night War. At the oh, time. yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there was no Japanese flavor on the WWF at the time. But also nope, the, nope. the NWO, the look, the aesthetic, it kind of fit with the whole black yeah, charisma thing. right that the, the, it was right there yeah mm-hmm. it really it, it felt like added a natural... nwt shirt on it just that's it yeah mm-hmm. and he had just you know a couple of years it was like two years before it turned into this character so it was also like a guy who used to dress and act one way now he changed his gimmick he changed his character just like these other fellows in nwo it fit yeah so it really it fit. fit right in fit right in and also it became this whole NWO thing became almost like a global phenomenon thing, right? Mm. Yeah. Because next two years, New Japan was like NWO Japan this and NWO Japan that. And even Keiji Muto joined, you know, like turned and joined the NWO Japan. That's right. Yeah. Then finally, 98, Chono won the IWGP heavyweight title for the first time. Mm. Yeah, but it was actually short-lived that uh, he had the bad neck and mm-hmm. he relinquished the end of it, uh, that uh, IWGP title without doing one title defense. Mm. Yeah. When, actually, so that neck injury that you mentioned, that, that was with Rick Rude or that was with Steve Austin? Uh, right. He must have done twice. That uh, I, I remember... He, I think maybe it was Masachono who injured Steve Austin's neck, but I, I forget which. Uh, uh, I gotta... No, I, I think Steve Austin injured Masachono's neck, and Orin Hart injured Steve Austin's neck. Right, right, and but uh, Rick Rude he hurt his back in a Sting match, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like a back body but drop. He hurt, and also Rick Rude was injured in Japan in Hukoka Dome or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but at the time, it's just like, they're doing all kinds of stadium show and big show, and then they're working extra hard and injured Okart here and there. Yeah. Mm. Like uh, career-threatening injuries. Oh, yeah. And New Japan was maybe getting to its most popular peak. It's most yeah, popular point. It's, yeah. A little before that, too, even just to talk about the style when these injuries are happening. These were big shows. And at the time, late 90s, the, the, the New Japan was doing two Tokyo Dome and one Fukuoka Dome and Osaka Dome and Yokohama and the Budokans in between kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All big shows. Yeah. And actually, Chono winning IWGP champion in 98 and, and because of his bad neck that he returned the title without doing one title defense, it really almost symbolized that he became a wrestler who doesn't need the title. Right, right. You know, because he will be main event with or without IWGP belts. Yeah. And he did develop this reputation. He had the nickname of Mr. August for all the G1 Wins. Oh yeah, the early, yeah, a little bit, yeah, five five years, you know, earlier, yeah. So I think those type of things, even though if he he never had the yeah, he, uh, title he run, remained. So every summer, you know, when G1 climax, you know, season comes, this might be Chono's year again, and so people felt that, yeah. Mm. 
He didn't win it again, no. But uh, every summer, it almost looked like Chono might win this year again, kind of thing.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kind of teased it too, so he almost didn't have to win. It's like a psychology, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and、um, from there, after the late '90s, he, he did stick around, but he wasn't、uh, in the same.、Uh, wasn't in yeah, the same so capacity. Yeah, so he was more of a Shawn Michaels, you know, like a like a damaged goods, you know, but still around, you know.、Mm-hmm. And、uh, even the tag team, you know, tag team situation,、um, that、uh, Hiroyoshi, Ten, you know, Tenzan would be doing eighty percent of the match. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah.、Mm-hmm. And the Chono comes in and do his spot and kind of tag out. Yeah,、so、I think that's down, that's a lot ten, of the, the last decade or so of his matches were kind of dream matches. You know, like、uh, it wasn't part of much of an angle. It, it was when the company started breaking apart, and he'd visit all Japan. He'd visit Noah. He yeah. And then what was interesting was that the Three Musketeers. I mean, real friends, right? But uh, uh, year two thousand that. Okay, before that,、uh, WCW and New Japan had a somewhat a falling out, I think, and the NWO logo wouldn't be using. So Chono's team quietly became Team 2000. If you That's、remember. right. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, they were not wearing NWO T-shirt anymore, right? But they still had the people like、uh, Michael Wall Street, Mike Rotondo, you know, the Bray Wyatt's father, and、uh, you had a fake Sting, you know,、mm-hmm. the, the Jeff Farmer. Jeff Farmer. Yeah, and、uh, Scott Norton NWO T-shirt, but hey, he was al- always a New Japan wrestler, right? And、uh, yeah, so but wearing still wearing black T-shirt, Chono's group, Muto a little bit in it, Hiro Saito, Tenzan, and、uh, the Satoshi Kojima.、Uh, that、uh, still looks like his team with Jeff Farmer and yeah,、uh, who maybe was on tour in it, and people like Rick Titan was still part of the. You know, oh, a, a big Titan. Yeah, but、uh, yeah, yeah, he was part of the Chono's team when he signed with, he signed away from FMW into New Japan. Yeah, but that didn't last that long. Anyhow, that the NWO Japan quietly became Team 2000, but the the, the image was the same. But the year 2000 actually came. Hashimoto left New Japan for real, or some people say he was fired, and some people say he left. And zero one, the, the Hashimoto forms zero one new company, completely new company, right? Then Muto leaves New Japan and joins WCW and spend whole year in spending this last dying days of WCW. And he witnessed everything. He's like, this is our shit, right? Then he came back, ended up joining All Japan, and Chono heel, but he was the only one stayed with New Japan company. So three musketeers. In three different companies after two, year 2001, yeah, Hashimoto is zero one. Muto is in process of going to all Japan for real, and and Chono and Liga was the, the only original New Japan crew that really stayed with the company during during this dark age. Yeah, yeah, dark age of wrestling was you know was about to come. Yeah, I'm talking about Bob Sapp era. You know what I'm saying?、Uh, very different era. Ah, yeah, but the Chono stayed with company for a long time and didn't. He was still under contract with New Japan, but didn't really work full time schedule. And that's when he became more of a character and sometimes color commentator on the table, and sometimes just he he just shows up. And every time Chono showed up, showed up, not working in the match, but it was kind of big deal, you know. 
So, yeah, it's been like this, you know, for the past 20 years now, I think. Yeah, because Chono hasn't been retired. Actually, he hasn't retired. Much like Toshiaki Kawada, he just left without telling people that he's retired. I guess Chono is actually retired, and I don't see him, you know, going back to the ring and have maybe one more match, maybe, but uh, he's basically a guest commentator for today's New Japan show. You know, like Wrestle Kingdom or G1 Climax this last year, last few years, but Chono sits on the table as a color commentator, guest commentator. You know, people so respect him. He's often the color commentator for the G1 finals. You always yeah, see him. Yeah, because he's Mr. G1. He's actually going to do color commentary next year at uh, Keiji Muto's final show. Oh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah. And he still looks like Chono, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's something we also should talk about, but I guess it's hard to talk about because in Japanese wrestling, the emphasis on talking or speaking into the mic, is it's not as big of a deal as it is over here. But Chono... One of the it's main just about the only one, right? Yeah, he's even... still in. Character. I was gonna say, even in yeah, he's in character, and even if you don't understand Japanese, he was connecting with people. The way he spoke, the way yeah. he his delivery was very pro wrestling still, but not oh, in sure. the Japanese yeah. sense. Uh, he there's a very special cool factor he had. Right, he's a cool guy. Yeah, and the way he talks is unique even in japanese he's a totally like a over-the-top i mean star character yeah As a, he's a star yeah um and in those he's past, on a lot of tvs yeah I mean, that's what i was gonna non -wrestling say tv yeah all the like a talk show comedy yeah. show or uh, the kids television kids kids show sure you know? sure yeah and he's, oh, in, he's I, on the ramen commercial posters. Sure. You know? yeah. I saw uh, a couple of years ago, he was in an advertisement for McDonald's shrimp burger, Ebby burger. <laughs> okay. Okay. Ebby burger. Yeah. yeah. Only in Japan, huh? But he yeah. was the spokesperson. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's I, Chono. You know, and he, even during the day, I mean, or at night, he has his signature sunglasses on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All black. All black. And that, the hairdo. And a, and a goatee, uh, just he stays being Masachono. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And his uh, his catchphrases are usually in English. Goddamn. Uh, uh, something mm. like yeah, so, yeah. So he's a character. It's so, a, if anybody out there watches like a Yakuza mafia movies, he's like a character <laughs> out of one of those kind of those over movies, the top character. Like a God, God, Godfather movie. Yeah. Godfather or or something. Or Al Pacino like, movie something. Yeah. So he's like a, a real, he has a tough guy feel, a genuine, yeah, yeah. believable tough guy feel. Yeah. And he makes sure that he still looks like Chono. Mm. I mean, some, some of the older guys, if you look at, you know, Akira Taue or, you know, today's Toshiaki Kawada, you could tell these people retired, you know? Right. Yeah, but uh, Chono comes in with his character costume, like his own, you know, line of clothing, Aristotoristo clothing. That he comes in like a, I mean, he sit there like a superstar. Hmm. And he is still star. 
But now it's, it'll be very interesting. Muto is really retiring from acting, you know, active wrestler. And uh, Chono hasn't been, but he's basically, people believe he's retired, but uh, he's much like, like a Roddy Piper. It almost doesn't matter if he's retired or not. That's a good uh, comparison because Roddy Piper, you, you always felt like if you wanted to have a match, he could probably pop back in there for, for a yeah, match. Yeah, one, one more match, right. So but, he's um, kind of like that. Yeah, but Chono's always, like Roddy Piper, he's always around. He's always on TVs. Nobody's really asking where's Muto, or excuse me, where's Chono, because you know, he's active. He has his own YouTube channel. and Yeah, he just hasn't had matches in years. Yeah. He's more of a you know celebrity. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's a very unique, almost isolated case in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because when Ricky Joshi retired, he doesn't look like he's in a retired old man. Hmm. Yeah, and Chono isn't. And Chono yeah. looks ready to go. Well, well, he should be in more in movies and television. I, I think, yeah. I just transferred to, I mean, just being the same character, not wrestling, but he's still st- still be on TV as Masahiro Chono. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, we, we we did we missed one interesting i don't know if it's important but i would say it's interesting the one what match he did i don't know if you can remember this one this is towards the end 99 2000 this was him and atsushi onita this was oh towards, he did that didn't he he did the the barbed wire uh, electric death match right and uh, he was I, I this was right think... before things began crumbling uh, in japan yeah, because... Because New Japan, you know, sensing this, you know, like a dark age period that they brought in Onita. They had Onita against Riki Choshu, Onita mm-hmm. against Ensuke Sasaki, of all people, then against Onita against Masachono. All right. And Chono wore some kind of bulletproof vest or... <laughs> bulletproof vest. I'm, like I'm a... not going to barb. He looked you're like, like crazy, right? He looked like he could be in um, Mad Max or uh, some sci-fi movie, but it fit the character. He wasn't about to cut up his back or anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's also a a testament to the style that he used. The style that he used could absolutely work in a wacky situation like a barbed wire death match. Um, And also, I don't think it would complement his style, you know, that... uh, He's a big, fashionable, big time, you know, like a cool looking heel, but not necessarily deathmatch guy, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And he, he was so play, charismatic. Didn't, didn't, yeah, didn't play Onita's game. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. think any of the New Japan guys did, if I recall correctly. If you watch those matches, Choshu or Sas- uh, Sasaki didn't really uh, play that game. Yeah, and then they came in without shirt and just just bumped right into barbed wire, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was uh, okay with Riki Choshu and, and, and Kensuke Sasaki, but uh, Chono was smarter than those two that uh, I ain't doing it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And but Chono that, was also very um, animated, like Onita was too. And he could really, if he needed to dial down the wrestling and dial up the charisma and posing to the crowd and pausing the match and getting angry at his opponent, I think that's something he does really well mm-hmm. he's always done well uh yeah, it, it's yeah. underappreciated because it's hard to notice this stuff when you're watching on a screen as well 
And this right. is and also in Japanese ring, he's the only one doing it because it's so athletic oriented in Japan, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like he was more of a reducing the effort, sort of, you know, mm-hmm. and get more out of it, you know. I think it's uh, it's hard to completely convey that style just through a TV screen. I think he, someone, he's a wrestler who really paid attention to his surroundings, and that really based what he would do. Uh, that's what I mean. That's what he would use to kind of create what he would do in the ring. Yeah, not necessarily him. not necessarily a shortcut, but he did it so no. smart. Yeah, authentic kind of uh, or common sense. He had common sense with it too. Yeah, and then also cherished the old style, old fashioned pro wrestling that always kept STF as his finish. Mm-hmm. You know, if he wasn't finished, he wouldn't do it. You know what I'm saying? I think it was his yeah. attitude that was what made it modern feeling. His attitude and the, his approach. He took a yeah. really basic old style and he put himself into that role and it connected in the 90s and, for and sure. made it into his modern style and mm-hmm. yeah yeah oh oh there's another we do got to touch on this one quickly okay when he and masanobu fuchi Got right, that uh, invasion, and there was like a backstory where New Japan wanted to purchase Old Japan, Skeleton Old Japan, after Misawa and his guys left and created Pro Wrestling Noah, and Mrs. Baba wanted to keep Old Japan going with just two guys, Masafuchi and Kawada, right? Mm. And the New, New Japan management wanted to purchase Old Japan, and Chono was sent to Old Japan's Budokan show, and Chono against Fuchi was that main event that night. Ah, mm. uh, yeah. The invasion, you know, the program, that the storyline always, always work, right? In a promotion, because yeah, probably especially New, around then too, right? And all Japan and New Japan never did that, and the, the it's the beginning of dark age. But uh, somewhat, New Japan superstar Masachono and all Japan's not the pillar is but the masafuchi tradition old japan guy who kept the company going that the masafuchi against chono would have this classic in at the budokan yeah kind of symbolic of the time mm. and yeah. the big when, when uh i believe i don't know where the angle started but there was that one the uh, fuchi got on the microphone Chono got on the microphone. They were, st- I remember them clearly screaming at each other, but I'm not sure if that was the New Japan show or the All Japan show. Probably All Japan environment. Yeah. But, um, I mean, for the Dark Ages, those were some of the few exciting little spots. Yeah. The, the, but the Dark Age was so strong that uh, anything you did in the wrestling company, you know, one against each other, it just didn't make big hit at the time, really. That uh, K1 and Pride and Inoki Bombaye and the New Year's Eve, the MMA night, and it just a lot of lot of wrestling fans, like all through '90s, loyal wrestling fan migrated into MMA audience, and uh, it was a real bad time for pro, pro wrestling. Yeah. And also around this time, Chono was active, but he wasn't active like he'd been. Uh, like right, said, right. Like he was more of a, a dream match type personality. And also working, always worked around his bad neck. Right. Yeah. And things changed yeah. a lot after he had an injury. So, yeah, it wasn't the same in the ring. 
It still mm. worked very smart matches though, but uh, it wasn't, you know, it was more more of a, like almost like a borrowed time, huh? As an active athlete. Yeah. Yeah. And a neck injury is different than say a knee injury or shoulder and just uh, injury. Right. You know, neck right. injury. Neck injury is serious. You have to change everything. Oh yeah. Most of but what at you the do. same time, as a uh, as a wrestling business, he sh- you know had to remain in in the major role too. So mm-hmm. yeah. But after all, Masachono still looks like Masachono. Yeah. Even today. E- even today, yeah. Oh, very good. I hope we covered a lot on Chono because he's he's also very special, very special superstar. I think so. It's one of he's one of those stars who they're really elusive, huh? A little elusive, but also there's a lot of info out there on him that's not like um, you can't find out about him just through the wrestling channels. You have to go out there, and he's more like Muto. Even more so than Muto, you could say, as more of a pop culture wrestler. He, he's yeah, a, yeah. I don't know if he would. Would you say he's a household name? I mean, oh, I, in I, Japan, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely you know the top of. And also his last name Chono. He's is the only Chono you'll meet. I mean, it's a very strange, not a strange, but a very. It's unique not last common. Name. Not common. Chono, like a Cho, is a bat, you know, butterfly. Mm-hmm. Butterfly field, you know, Chono, yeah. Very unique view on uh, an approach to pro wrestling. Uh, yeah. And I think there's a, a good... Real good career, yeah. A good, good template for this cool heel that got really popular after he debuted that. I'm not saying that he's the, the main person that was responsible for this cool heel uh, mentality that people especially wrestlers started taking on in the late nineties, but his whole uh, personality and character really, it fit with the time too. It never felt, he never felt like he was from a different period. You know, he always feels like Masachono and he feels relevant. He doesn't feel like an old yeah. wrestler. He doesn't, you know, uh, Ricky Choshu feels like Ricky Choshu, but he, he's, it's a special situation. He's kind of stuck in Ricky Choshu land. Chono seems yeah yeah because the wrestling is you know his, his uh, Choshu's match is actually pretty simple you know mm-hmm. clothesline mm-hmm. and clothesline and scorpion deathlock that's about it right no, he his personality he, he's the jock he's the athlete yeah jock yeah he's and it never stops training where Chono I think has a lot more different or more unique interests or you know yeah or well, shows up in nightclub or something right shows up in a nightclub or in a music video or has a line of clothing yeah. or. Yeah, yeah. So he can be in movies, he can be on TV, and just still Chono, and very, mm-hmm. very much superstar or a different kind of superstar order than than, than, than Chon, Choshu and Fujinami. Mm. Uh, he yeah. and the look too is so important that he developed. I mean, you see those glasses and the goatee, you know exactly who it is. Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Very iconic look. Yeah, very animated. Yeah, animated too. In a I mean, way. He, he animated in a in a really yeah like a japanese a, anime i'm talking about yeah like oh yeah he looks like he's a character out of a, a comic book yeah yeah a little That's over the I'm... top yeah but i i think if you are interested in learning more about chono you got to check out what's out there on you know new japan world and youtube and daily motion or even uh wc yeah and then uh, two 
two distinctive different era, the white, you know, white tights Chono winning G1 Climax and black costume Chono being total heel and cool guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two different era, like a different stage of his game. You can watch the uh, the first time he won the G1, and yep. then his. I would I would say to to get a good taste of the white tights Chono. Yeah, you could 91, 92, match. 93. Yeah, 96, 1996 G1. Him and Ricky Toshu. Oh, that's climb, the other yeah. one, where he's a, totally in in the peak black charisma. Yeah. Period. Against, against babyface Choshu, right? The, uh, maybe the last really big, serious match of Choshu's career. Probably. And after that, that the NWO Japan and the Team mm -hmm. 2000. Yeah. And those, those lasted a long time, too. Yeah. Yeah. So the faction is important, you know. You know, then the, now that's New Japan, probably if there was no Team 2000, there wouldn't be no Bullet Club, huh? So, I mean, that was definitely felt like the prototype yeah, right, yeah, for the Bullet Club. It was, you know. I think so. NWO Team 2000. I mean, it was so similar anyway. Um, the black and white aesthetic, the black, you know, the T-shirt, the, the logos. I associate and, a lot and, of that with. Therefore, Chino. the merchandise, you know, era began, you know. Mm. Yeah. The fans buy all, all, all their gimmicks. Yeah. Uh, he's a genius at communicating very simple, strong ideas with the audience and, and speaking the language. I think yeah. he's a master at that. As I don't think people should look for uh, a crazy good match. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, he can do that, but that, that's not what he was there for because Keiji Muto could do that. Jushin Liger sure. could do that. Um, I think he was really important to the New Japan um, formula back then, too. I think he was a good balance to have, so... Mm -hmm. In the end, uh, Masachono. Yeah. His story is still unfolding, actually. So, yeah, because right, he's not retired and he'll be involved in, 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 in Keiji Muto's retirement tour. So, mm -hmm. and he's like Keiji Muto, where he, you know, New Japan, Noah, it doesn't really affect the. He's not going anywhere. He, he's bigger than the companies like Muto. Right. And it's not that big of a deal if he ends up or, or shows up in another company. It's more like Chono will go where That's he him. wants to go. Him. Right. So again, much like Roddy Piper. Yeah. I, uh, Roddy yeah. Piper is a great way to put it too. Yeah. Uh, somebody who's always around, a little active, but not always, always ready to go, always in character. And he's always welcome. That's right. Masa Chono. All okay. right. So if we have... More questions for you, Fumi-san. If you wanted to talk about Masachono or anything else, where well, can any we... Any questions. Any questions. Where can we reach at, you? At Twitter, at Fumihikodayo, F-U-M-I-H-I-K-O-D-A-Y-O, Fumihikodayo, or just Fumisaito on Facebook. And Please on, message oh, me first. Excuse me. Please message him first, always. And by the way, on Twitter, I am at Justin M. Nipper, K-N-I-P-P-E-R. Find us there. Ask questions. If you have requests for show ideas coming up in the future, let us know. But until next time, Fumi, take it away. So long from Tokyo.
Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.